Thanks, Jeff. Now, Jeffy will be preaching to us from Hebrews chapter 1. So if you pull out your Bibles, uh, verses 1 to 4, I'll read that passage before Jeff comes to preach. Hebrews 1, beginning at verse 1. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom also he made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. So he became as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. Well, thank you again for your warm welcome. Uh, I must admit that it feels a little bit presumptuous for me to tackle this particular passage in this particular pulpit. Uh, A former vice principal of this college taught me Hebrews in fourth year and later wrote the best commentary available on this book. Uh, And as I said, I grew up in Sydney, so I'm very conscious of not trying to guide us through the last word on Hebrews 1. Uh, So why is it that I've chosen to speak on the prologue this morning? Well, uh, the short answer is that I'm starting a series at Hebrews at my church on Sunday. I call that being wise or killing two birds with the one stone principle, uh, if you don't mind me calling you avian roadkill. (laughs) Uh, But actually there's a second and more profound reason to which I'll return later. Of course, I can't properly untangle the exegetical puzzles or adequately plumb the theological depths in 20 minutes. Uh, I know from experience here that nothing will irritate you more than college chapel sermons cutting into morning tea cricket. So I will limit my comments to just two observations from the passage, both of which drive towards one possible application. First observation. Clearly the writer is trying to draw comparisons. That's how he starts and that's how he ends. Verse 1. God has spoken in the past through the prophets, but in these last days he has spoken by his son. Verse 4, the son became as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. Clearly the writer is trying to draw comparisons. You'll be pleased to know that having identified the bookends of the passage in verses 1 through and 4, I'm not going to dwell on the likely implied chiastic structure of the prologue. Uh, It took years after college to stop imagining chiasms in every text. Rather... My point is that verses 1 through 4 emphasise the importance of comparison. Uh, It's true, there are times where comparisons are deeply unhelpful. Drawing comparisons can lead to pride or envy. I think that Sophie DeWitt's brilliant little book, Compared to Her, Compared to Her by Sophie DeWitt, uh, it ought to be on the library of every gospel worker. She says that all of us suffers what she calls compulsive comparison syndrome. Either we compare down so we feel better about ourselves or we compare up and feel worthless. But at other times, comparisons can help us to better interpret our circumstances. They can help us to overflow with thankfulness, Colossians 2. 
for all that we do have, not what we don't. So we have taught our kids to say, Grace, Lord, make us mindful of those with less. When you're stuck in a hospital waiting room, in many parts of the world, it's uh, it's a good reminder that in many parts of the world, diagnosis is useless because you can't get the prescribed medication. Or when you take annual leave, or even better, after a decade-long service leave, it's a good reminder that for the vast majority globally, if you don't work, you don't eat. Hence that delightful, old-fashioned exhortation to count your blessings. The reason I think the writer draws comparisons in Hebrews 1, 1 to 4 is to highlight what God is doing in these last days. In these last days. Uh, Yes, he has always spoken to us through the prophets, through angels, the Old Testament mediators of divine revelation. As an aside, how remarkable that God never gave us the silent treatment even though we gave him the brush off. God has always spoken to us, but now in his son, he has really spoken. So come marvel at the difference in magnitude of this new communication. It's like comparing a text or a tweet with a one-on-one sit-down over a long lunch. Pay attention. Listen up. This is worth hearing. Second observation. Uh, The very heart of the passage, of course, is verses 2 and 3. Here the author will offer three extravagant descriptions of God's mouthpiece, his son, as he describes his qualifications, what he is like, what he has done, why he is superior by way of comparison with everything and everyone else. Three descriptions. Firstly, he is the one whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom also he made the universe. Uh, Yes, the son was there at the beginning as the agent of creation, but he will also be there at the very end. The son is not an afterthought. He is not a plan B. In fact, everything before it was made was made for him which is a great honour indeed. No one else is ever allowed to say, it's all about me. Perhaps that's why the author moves backwards chronologically in verse 2, from the end to the beginning, to remind us that the end is primary. The destination matters more than the origin. And we are living in these last days in the final stage of God's great plans. As an aside, I hear much talk from our politicians on the campaign trail trying to describe the times we live in and why their party, of course, is the best one to help us navigate them. According to Hebrews 1, if you are unclear as to what times we live in, we are in the last days because God has spoken by his Son. Secondly, the sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his beings, sustaining all things by his powerful word. Now, at this point, I should acknowledge that I don't propose to explain why the writer uses sun in Hebrews 1 
and without an article or possessive pronoun for those with keen eyes. I'm simply going to assert that by son he means Jesus, uh, even though he speaks of God rather than the more common Johannine parallel of father. I'm sorry if that for you feels like a shortcut, but to be honest, and here's my confession, I'm not very strong on the doctrines of of the Trinity and Christology. Now, in my defence, I thought I'd plead, when I was here, those were electives. Um, Actually, can you believe I didn't even do atonement at Moore College of all places? But the writer's point, I think, is that Jesus is fully God in every way, so to borrow John's language, if you've seen the Son, you have seen the Father. This son continues to be involved in God's creation. He is not deistic nor disengaged. He sustains all things and the way he discharges his rule over God's world is by his powerful word. By his powerful word. Which I think is just the most wonderful comfort. Because as we watch our society rapidly corrode, we can start to wonder if God is still active in, in our world? Fear not. He is. So even if you can't sense his involvement or discern his hand at work, please listen to his word. It will not return to him empty, but it will always achieve the purpose for which he has sent it to the very ends of the earth. third description or qualification of the son, after he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. Of all the works of Christ that the, that the writer could focus on, the one he dwells on is the one no one else could, was qualified to do. He provided purification for sins. Atonement. Uh, clearly the writer means final purification accomplishing what the Old Testament sacrificial system only ever achieved in part, which I think is just the most wonderful relief because the blood of bulls and goats could never permanently remove sin. So without Christ's intervention, you and I would continue to be stained by our sin, accountable for our misconduct facing death for our transgressions. And now the confirmation that the son's purifying work is final and complete is that he sat down. He sat down uh, at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. I think it's a delightful image that has uh, one of two possible nuances. To sit down either implies that his mission is accomplished or that he has the place of honour. That his mission is accomplished, Christ is sitting, not standing, because his work is done. He can, if it's not too casual an image, he can put his feet up. There is nothing left to do. But similarly, it is a place of honour that he has inherited. Christ is sitting, not kneeling, because he has a seat at the table. He belongs In fact, without undermining the doctrine of the eternal trinity, he is the radiance of God's glory and exact representation and being 
Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today and forever. Without undermining that, nevertheless, in some way, the Son has become superior even to angels and so is entitled to even greater honour for providing purification for sins. For his self-sacrifice for men and women of all races, it is right that God should exalt him to the highest place and now give him the name that is above every name, that at that name every knee should bow and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the ultimate glory of God the Father. Well, to return to my opening question then, why have I chosen Hebrews 1 for today? Well, I gave a superficial reason at the start. Here's the more profound one. I've done it because, for this morning at least, I want to point us to the one in whom and because of whom we have life and hope, and yet, incredibly, even in a theological college, sometimes he can fade from view. So today, I want to bring him to the foreground once more to help you fix your eyes on him and so to warm your heart. That's because on day two of term two, your blood pressure might already be rising. Perhaps you're drowning in the minutiae of careful, detailed, original language exegesis. Perhaps you're dismayed by seemingly pious theologians who are unable to agree or, at the very least, agree to disagree in a godly fashion. Perhaps you're exhausted by ministry, downcast because of people's hardness to the gospel, overwhelmed by your own sinfulness, even in the hours since which you have woken. Perhaps you've come from a diocese like Adelaide, where the majority of our clergy at the last synod voted to bless same-sex unions And our Archbishop has indicated he won't hold them accountable even to their own words in their ordination vows, let alone to God's final word given in his Son. Perhaps you're paralysed by not knowing what's happening when you graduate. That's easy, come to Adelaide. (laughs) Or perhaps, and I speak to the senior brothers and sisters here, Perhaps you're struggling with learning the the names of another group of new students who in a few short years are going to move on and leave you behind. One tip I I stumbled on early in ministry was to write at the top of the first page of every talk I gave this sentence. At the end of this talk, I want my hearers to... It's the principle that if you can't state your objective in one sentence, you certainly won't hit it. Um, So here's mine today. At the end of this talk, I want my hearers to rejoice that Jesus is better. Because whatever your circumstances, whatever your situation, whatever your struggle, even if you are in the midst of great suffering, what will sustain you in these last days is the conviction that By comparison, God's Son is better. He is in every way superior. 
for who he is and what he has done and therefore what you can be certain that he will still do, he will always be supreme. So here's my application. How might the comparisons drawn in verses 1 through 4 help you to rejoice that Jesus is better? Let me offer, let me offer two practical suggestions. Firstly, don't just point out the inferiority of the lesser. Uh, that's an important thing to do, lest we ever find ourselves settling for less. Don't just point out the inferiority of the lesser. Make sure you dwell on the superiority of what is better. I'll give you an example. If you've never done this exercise, you should try doing so. Try watching a movie on beta. Now, because you don't know what that is, try watching a movie on VHS. Actually, looking around, you don't know what that is either. So then try watching a, a movie on a DVD and then watch it on Blu-ray, and then watch it on Ultra HD. Now, before you do it, of course, you'll scoff at how much better the latter could be. But once you've done it, you'll know you'll never go back. So I want to urge you, keep, re -re keep reading and rereading your Old Testament, but not to highlight its inadequacies. There is an eternal covenant and an eternal gospel. Rather, read it so you might be more dazzled by Christ's splendour when you are finally and inevitably drawn towards him. And second suggestion, because we so quickly forget those blessings that we counted, we need constant reminders of the son's superiority. We need constant reminders of the sun's superiority. Uh, that's because, of course, we live in a world that's powered by discontentment and dissatisfaction. Think about politics. Politics is all about vote for me and I'll make your life better than the other guy. Think about marketing. Without my product that I'm selling, you're missing out. Because we so easily forget the blessings that we've counted, we need constant reminders of the sun's superiority. Hence, Hebrews 12 will urge us to fix our eyes on Jesus. And that's a deliberate, intentional, even costly decision to focus our gaze in a particular direction and on a particular object. How do you do that? Well, again, two quick suggestions. Firstly, when he speaks please give him your full attention. When he speaks, please give him your full attention. I work with university students much of the time, so I get very annoyed when I'm talking to one and they don't put down their phone. Or worse, they pick up the phone mid-sentence and start texting someone else, uh, even during their sentence, let alone mine. So can I urge you in chapel tomorrow, whenever it is next, turn off your phone or at least switch it on flight mode if you're using it to take notes or view the Bible. And please resolve that I will not sit back and mentally work through my to-do list during this time. Over the years I've come to realise that the reason my daily devotions are always better when I do them first thing in the morning, not later in the day, is because 
Overnight sleep is like rebooting your computer. You know when your computer crashes because there's too much going on, you reboot it and it all starts up nice and fresh again? When I do my daily devotions first thing in the morning, I don't have quite as many programs running yet and I'm less easily distracted. So when he speaks, please give him your full attention. And finally, can I suggest that every day for one week, you resolve to tell one person why, for you, Jesus is better. Every day for one week, resolve to tell one person why, for you, Jesus is better. It might be over lunch. It might be in your prayer triplet. It might be in your household. Sure, talk about the class you've come from or the ministry issue you're exploring or the personal struggle you're grappling with. Those are good things to share with each other. But make sure you also share something about him and why he is better, if for no other reason, because he is the author and perfecter of our faith. Ultimately, to sing someone else's praises means more than just telling them what they already know about themselves. It means telling others so they might learn that song as well and rejoice with us too. So with that in mind, let me commission us today with the conclusion from Hebrews chapter 13. Now may the God of all peace who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, may he equip you with everything good for doing his will and may work in us what is pleasing to him through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. High King of heaven, my victory won, May I reach heaven's joys, O bright heaven's sun. Heart of my own heart, whatever befall, still be my vision, O ruler of all. Amen.